Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Desert Island Disc is an annual event inspired by the long-standing BBC broadcasts. And we ask our guests, just like the BBC does, uh, about eight pieces of music and a little bit, a few questions about uh, books and uh, a luxury that they would like to take with them if they are a castaway on a desert island. And our castaway today is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, a well-known individual here in Hampstead for many, many years, born and bred in Nottinghamshire, read biology at Cambridge and Harvard, <coughs> conducted research uh, and was awarded a PhD in biochemistry at Cambridge, then conducted uh, research at the University of Malaya in India on physiology of tropical crops, and since then he has written a series of remarkable books and uh, conducted research, and the books include, for instance, The Science Delusion. We'll touch on all of this, lightly, with music as our guide, uh, a kind of pneumorphic resonance, uh, perhaps. <laughs> so, um, Rupert, before we start, if you had not been a scientist, what would you have been? Well, when I was at school, I did very well in classics, and the classics masters wanted me to become a classicist. And I think... Uh, if I'd been pushed hard enough, I would have gone in that direction. I see. I've been a classicist and a historian. So the humanist and the science combined. Yes. And um, very well. If you um, are not a scientist, what do you enjoy? Well, I suppose if I also, there's lots of things I enjoy, but one of my favourite things is going to Kew Gardens. I get on the underground, if I overground, if I have a free afternoon. And, spend the afternoon at Kew Gardens and that for me is as close to paradise as I can imagine. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Now you love travel and uh, where in particular do you travel? I mean Western Canada might come to mind. Well yes I've been every year uh, our family has spent about 35 years where we go in the summer to a remote island in Western Canada, British Columbia. Um, I've travelled in other parts of the world. I lived and worked in Asia, as you mentioned, and in South America, um, and so on. But this year I'm not travelling very much. Jill and I are having a no-fly year for ecological reasons, so we're only going where we can go on trains. So our wings are literally clipped this year. <laughs> very well. Well, we still offer you a fantastic trip, if only in this room, to be marooned on a desert island, a beautiful, warm, safe, but alone. And to console you, uh, even Jill is not there, I'm afraid, not for the next hour, we offer you music. So uh, what would you like your island to look like, just to make sure that we get to the right place? Well, I actually was marooned on a desert island once in Malaysia um, with a group of friends. Um, and it was lush, it was tropical, um, it had lovely beaches, white sand beaches, um, it had beautifully warm water. There were, however, mosquitoes, leeches and sharks. So um, this desert island is comfortable, presumably somebody without damaging the environment has removed all these noxious animals. No sharks yes. in this room, no sharks here tonight. 
So, um, as uh, um, usual, you have eight discs in mm. your survival kit. We are going to ask you some questions and then listen and for about three to four minutes each. And then we will listen for about one and a half to two minutes of music. Um, and uh, so, just a, a, a last question before I go to the first disc. How have you chosen your music? Well, when you asked me to do this, I, I was uh, paralyzed because there were so many pieces of music I like. I hardly knew where to begin. I was like a rabbit in the headlights. Um, and then I gradually, well, then you told me it was, I hadn't actually listened to Desert Island Disc before, so I listened to some on BBC iPlayer, and, and you told me it was sort of autobiographical. So I then thought about different stages of my life, and that made it much easier to choose pieces. Um, but really, I ended up with a list of 20 or 30 pieces and then just had to keep going <coughs> down to the statutory eight. Sorry for the constraint, um, <laughs> but it is the law. So the first disc, uh, which is the, fir the first disc you have chosen, is Bach's Gloria from the B minor mass. And before we play it, uh, I'll ask you why you have chosen it and uh, what does it mean to you? Well, I chose it because Bach is, for me, the supreme composer, and my whole life has been filled with Bach. I play Bach every day on the piano, I was playing some earlier today. Um, I play Bach on the organ. Um, I was raised with Bach because my father was a great devotee of Bach and had a collection, lots of collected records. They mm -hmm. start with lots of 78s. And in fact, the very last thing he did, he died at the age of 67 unexpectedly. And he had a heart attack on his way back home, having given a talk shortly before Christmas on Bach's Christmas music. So um, I, Bach, he took me to um, the B minor mass in Lincoln Cathedral when I was a child and, and in Subalminster. And so we used to go to the St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion, the B minor mass. So I was, I was sort of raised on Bach from the earliest age, and it's the, the, the strand of music that runs most strongly through my whole life. So I thought it's best to start with Bach. And it runs in the family, uh, I understand, and not only your father, but before. Well, my grandfather and my uncle, my father's brother, were both church organists, so I come from a line of church organists, and both of them, of course, played Bach. Very well. And, uh, and one further point, one of the, I was a chorister at school and one of the things that most moved me when I was about 12 uh, was we did a performance of part of the Bach Christmas Oratorio and I sang a solo um, in, 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 in that Prepare Thyself Zion uh, in the Christmas Oratorio. And so that was very deeply etched in my memory, the experience of singing Bach at quite an early age. Very well, let's uh, listen to uh, Bach's <coughs> Gloria from the B minor mass. <laughs> Indeed. Now, the second uh, disc you have chosen is Purcell Music for a While, and uh, you might, 
And why have you chosen that piece of music? Well, when I, I was very keen on Purcell, I still am. Um, and when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, I listened to this a lot, Purcell's music for a while and other Purcell music. I particularly like this particular rendering by Alfred Della. Um, so uh, I just think Purcell is so supremely musical and one of my favorite, certainly my favorite English composer, but um, definitely one of my favorite composers. So. I had to include Purcell in the list. So during uh, university, you um, you studied biology. You read biology, I should yes. say. Yeah, I'm a foreigner, so uh, <laughs> you read biology. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your first years in university and uh, how that affected you? Well, I was an undergraduate at Clare College, Cambridge, um, and I love being at Cambridge. Um, I really enjoyed studying biology, particularly botany, um, because um, the people who taught botany were mostly people who spent time outdoors. They recognized plants. Uh, one of my professors, E.J.H. Corner, had spent years in Malaysia, um, was an expert on tropical botany. Um, and botany was taught in a really holistic spirit. I really enjoyed it. Um, Physiology, on the other hand, which I also studied, was taught in the most sort of grimly mechanistic spirit. You know, the body's just a machine, the brain's just made up of these wires, like a telephone exchange. Now it's, of course, a computer, but then it was a telephone exchange. Um, a heart's just a pump. Um, a attempt to try and remove all mystery from life. And one of the things that I noticed was that, although we were officially studying life, uh, the first thing we did with anything we were studying was to kill it. Uh, so actually we were studying dead organisms, not living organisms. So you, you have to kill them and then dissect them. Um, and so I felt something was sort of wrong. I'd gone into biology because I loved animals and plants. As a child I had lots of pets. I kept homing pigeons, tortoises, budgerigars, had a dog, um, a rabbit. Uh, hamsters, gerbils. I don't know how my parents put up with all this, but um, um, anyway, I had lots of animals and I loved plants. My father was a herbalist and taught me the names of plants and I had a pressed plant collection. So I did biology because I loved animals and plants. And then I ended up uh, studying them because I loved them and the first thing I had to do was kill them. So that made me really think about what's going on. Is this really about life or is it really about death? And I came across the writings of Goethe, the German poet and botanist, when I was an undergraduate, and he pointed towards a much more holistic way of doing science and of thinking about nature, and that had a really big effect on me. And so much so, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do science anymore. I, mean, I did very well at it. You know, I was a scholar of my college. I got a double first. Everyone expected I'd do research, but I thought, do I really want to spend my life killing animals and decapitating rats? And so I decided I didn't. Um, then I got uh, a scholarship to Harvard for a, a year as a fellow in the graduate school, um, where I studied history and philosophy of science. I wanted to sort of step back and look at this bigger picture. Um, that made a big difference. It was just after Thomas Kuhn's book, the structure of scientific revolutions had been published. And I realized that this mechanistic materialist way of looking at life was not the truth. It was just a kind of fashion 
that could pass, uh, although it was overwhelmingly powerful, it wasn't the ultimate truth. And that made me reinterested in science. When I went back to Cambridge to do a PhD, I worked on plants because I didn't want to kill animals. I, I suppose I still had to kill plants, but most of us do that even when eating a lettuce leaf. So, uh, um, uh, I, um, anyway, that, so that's changed. That uh, perspective, Goethe and Kuhn and history and philosophy of science, really changed my perspective. So, um, and, and this. I think perhaps the foundations of an important uh, theory in your mind were laid at that period, uh, which eventually came out in the book The Science Delusion, and I'll read a short review that The Guardian wrote in 2012, which I thought was insightful. Uh, it, they wrote, the orthodox mechanistic believers might have been expected to say what is wrong with the view that you, exp uh, that you expressed, that there is something beyond the mechanistic Yes. Uh, which we will talk about. But in fact, not only have scientists most ignored it, but some of the uh, most professed champion of scientific impartiality have refused to look at it. Uh, and so uh, this might be indeed a good example, says the Guardian, of what Sheldrake means by the science delusion. So can you tell us uh, in a few brief sentences, which will not do justice to your thinking, what the science delusion is, the ten dogmata, the and what your perspective on that is. Well, I can't go through all ten dogmata, but the, um, the, the, the first is that nature is mechanical, machine-like. And in my book, The Science Delusion, I turn the dogmas into questions and treat them as scientific hypotheses rather than revealed truths. So that becomes the question, is nature mechanical? Is nature like a machine? Because the alternative metaphor is only a metaphor. Uh, the main alternative metaphor is that nature is an organism. Is the universe more like a growing, developing organism or like a machine? I think it's more like an organism. I think the Earth, Gaia, is more like an organism. I think living organisms like animals and plants are more like organisms than machines. So uh, that's one dogma. Then nature, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made of unconscious matter. Uh, there's no consciousness anywhere in the whole nature, no consciousness out there, certainly no God. Um, there's only consciousness inside human brains and maybe higher animal brains as well. Um, of course, the existence of consciousness in our brains, when it's meant to be totally unconscious everywhere in the universe, is itself a mystery, and that's called the hard problem. We ought not to be conscious. So some philosophers of mind, materialist philosophers, try to pretend that we aren't. Um, they spend, they have entire careers trying to prove we're not conscious and they come up with their solution is that our consciousness is an illusion but as their critics point out this doesn't really solve the problem because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness so that's why it's called the hard problem and then there are other dogmas the laws of nature are fixed they were all fixed at the moment of the Big Bang um, when you ask that question in an evolving universe are the laws fixed, like a kind of cosmic Napoleonic code, or do they evolve along with nature? I suggest they evolve along with nature, like common law. If you're going to have a law metaphor, then think it through. Laws change. Um, and actually, I think the law metaphor is very inappropriate, because nature, as C.S. Lewis once said, to say that a stone falls to the ground because it's following a law makes it a man and even a citizen. 
only civilised societies have laws. I think habit is a much better way of thinking of the regularities of nature. And so on. I, I can't go through all ten dogmas, but in my book what I do is try to show that this dogmatic belief system really does constrain science. And when we ask these questions, it opens up. I'm very pro-science, but science becomes much more interesting, exciting, and all sorts of lines of inquiry become possible that are at present inhibited. So we're going to explore that a little bit later when we talk about uh, consciousness. Uh, but right now we are going to listen to music for a while. Personal. Monteverdi's Madrigal Amor. And why have you chosen that? And uh, what does it mean to you? Well, two reasons. One, when I was an undergraduate, I belonged to a Madrigal group. We met at Jesus College, Cambridge, um, <coughs> once or twice a week and sang Madrigals, which <coughs> I really enjoyed very much. I sang bass. Um, and secondly, when I was uh, doing research in the biochemistry department at Cambridge, I was nocturnal. Um, during the daytime, you had to sort of queue up to use the microscopes and the scintillation counters and the centrifuges because it was under-equipped. Um, um, so uh, I and my close friend Tim Hunt, now Sir Tim Hunt, the Nobel laureate, um, we both lived at the Eagle pub in Cambridge. I lived in a garret and he lived on the first floor on the gallery. And we used to go to the lab together um, after dinner, when I was a fellow of Clare, I didn't have a full dinner at Clare, including port, and then head off to the lab. So we'd start work at about 10 o'clock at night. We'd work through till 3 or 4 in the morning. Um, and there was no one else there, so we could use all the equipment. And Tim got a record player and wired up his lab and mine. I was in the plant biochemistry lab, he was in the protein lab. Um, we had loudspeakers in the lab and wires draped over the outside of the building to connect them. And we listened to, to music as we worked. It was quite wonderful. And we, one of our favorite things was Monteverdi's Orfeo. So many, many times I did my experiments on plants to the accompaniment of Orfeo by Monteverdi. We also had Don Giovanni and a whole range of other operas, and Tristan and Isolde and so on. It's mainly operas. Um, so anyway, that was uh, one of the reasons why I thought I should include Monteverdi. He's also one of my favourite composers. You did uh, a serious uh, scientific research in those years. Uh, you made also some groundbreaking uh, discoveries in, uh, uh, like the auction hormone. Uh, and uh, um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Because I actually thought it is not only a fascinating scientific development, it has a spiritual component. Well, when I was doing research on plant development at Cambridge, one of the key questions was how is the hormone, one of the main plant hormones is called auxin, A-U-X-I-N, 
chemically it's indole acetic acid. It's, a, it's very closely related to the amino acid tryptophan, one of the 20 amino acids that occur in proteins in plants and animals. Um, and this hormone controls many aspects of plant development, the elongation of shoots, the formation of wood, the rooting uh, of cuttings. In fact, rooting powder that you buy for cuttings is synthetic auxin. Um, but no one knew how it was made uh, in plants. And since it controlled almost every aspect of plant development, knowing how it's made and where it's made is rather important. And most people assume that auxin must be made by a sophisticated biosynthetic pathway under close genetic control. But what I discovered is that, on the contrary, it's made by dying cells. As cells die, the proteins break down. Cells contain enzymes that digest themselves. Um, and as cells die, the proteins break down, releasing tryptophan and all the other amino acids. And then those are broken down, and one of the breakdown products of tryptophan is auxin. Another is tryptamine, which is 5-hydroxytryptamine um, is serotonin, a neurotransmitter. So it's closely related to serotonin. So I discovered that auxin was biochemically made by dying cells. And in the plant, the main dying cells are in the wood cells, the wood cells in the vein of leaves and in the trunks of trees. Um, in the vascular bundles, the, the bits that conduct fluid. The wood cells are dead, empty tubes. The, when they form, they, the cell thickens up the wall, and then it dissolves the end between successive cells to make a sort of series of pipes. Um, and the cells commit suicide. As they commit suicide, they dissolve their end contents. As they dissolve their contents, they release auxin, which stimulates further growth and further formation of wood cells. So death is within life, and the death within life, the death of these cells, promotes the growth and life of others. Um, so that was one of the things I did then, and um, at the time it wasn't very widely accepted because um, most people just couldn't believe that something as important as auxin could come from dying cells. Um, and during lockdown, I had plenty of time, and so I revisited this, and uh, I discovered that in the last 40, 50 years, um, research on auxin production has basically run into the ground. They've tried everything they can to prove that it's made by living cells, and it's failed over and over again. But when you take together all these very detailed results, they fit like pieces of a jigsaw, into, and everything becomes clear. Uh, the aux it really is now clear that auxin is made by dying cells. So, in two years ago, I published in the Journal of Experimental Botany a paper called The Production of Auxin by Dying Cells, which is having a, a revolutionizing effect on thinking in the field, having failed to do so 50 years earlier. Uh, it just shows it takes time sometimes. Um, I also worked on the nature of aging and senescence uh, at the cellular level. And again, I took that up again during COVID, and my paper on that was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society called Cellular Senescence, uh, Rejuvenation and Potential Immortality. Um, so that, that was work I was doing at Cambridge, and I, which I've recently taken up again, and which has now got a whole new lease of life. You might almost say 
a kind of a resurrection in biology and uh, new life coming from from death. In other words, death is not the end. Death isn't the end, it's the key to more life. And um, it's within life as well. Um, so it's, it, was a, it was a very satisfying theory. The thing is, I've been reading a lot of Goethe, and Goethe actually at one stage says, you know, death is life's mean, it means for having life in, more, in greater abundance. And that's actually true in plants. So let us listen then to Monteverdi's Madrigal, Amor, Love. fourth disc, Rupert, is from another period in time. Uh, it's the Beatles. Because. <coughs> because of what? Well, uh, when I was at uh, Cambridge, the Beatles were in, in full flood, you know, and this was... Um, the more I listened to the Beatles, the more I liked them. I, I became a huge Beatles fan. Uh, I much preferred them to almost any other pop group I knew. Um, and so that particular piece I chose because it's from the album Abbey Road, which was recorded here nearby, where we are now. Um, and it has this combination of kind of rather magical words and music, and they're, they're wonderfully tuneful and harmonic music. Um, so that's why I chose the Beatles. Um, and it was a, during a period of my life when I was both at Cambridge um, and then also when I was a fellow of Clare, I had a year off, I had a Royal Society grant to go and study tropical botany. So I was working in the botany department of the University of Malaya on tropical ferns. Um, but on the way to Malaya, this was in 1968, I was traveling through India. Um, I spent about two months in India on the way. The Royal Society gave me a ticket to Malaysia and I discovered that at no extra cost I could break it up into sort of about ten different flights and travel all the way through India um, on this Royal Society ticket to Kuala Lumpur. Um, and so uh, when I was in India in 1968 it was a very exciting period. It was India was the Beatles had just been there, the Maharishi was sort of becoming well known. There was a hippie trail of people driving in, hippies driving in VW buses through Pasha and Afghanistan. And, and so India was full of hippies and, um, and the, it, it was just sort of incredibly exciting to be there. And so for me, uh, that period of traveling through India, the Beatles were in the background uh, because they'd been in India and um, I listened to the Beatles when I could. Uh, but also, of course, I became uh, familiar, a little familiar with Indian music. Um, and then living in Malaysia, I had a, a year living in um, a culture that was so different from our own. You know, I was exposed to Hinduism in India and Islam. I spent a month in Sri Lanka 
and uh, sort of learned something about Buddhism, visited the monastery. And then in Malaysia, there were Chinese, Indians, Malays who are Muslim. Uh, it was a you know, very exotic and wonderful place to be. So if I can use one word to trigger another story, anatheism. Yes, an anathe anatheism. Um, well, anatheism is means return. Anna means again, and theism means theism. Um, uh, it's a word to describe a path back to God, if you've gone away from God, and I had because part of my scientific education involved buying into atheism as part of the package deal. My schoolmasters made it very clear to me that no intelligent scientist could possibly be a Christian, so you had to be an atheist if you were a scientist. That was the message. And most of my scientific colleagues in Cambridge seemed to think the same. Um, and so I just, if you buy into the mechanistic materialist worldview, there's no room for God. You've got indeterminate universe, <coughs> or one with a bit of randomness in it, of entirely unconscious, no consciousness out there, problematic consciousness in the brain that's just an illusion. Therefore, God's just an idea in human minds, a superstition that exists in our brains, and uh, just a matter of neurotransmitters and electrical impulses. So I, was, I adopted the atheist point of view. When I got to Cambridge, I joined the Cambridge Humanist Society and went to their meetings with talks by leading atheists like Sir Julian Huxley. Um, I wasn't very impressed. I stopped going after a few meetings. They were mostly boring, but uh, <laughs> Sir Julian Huxley's was the most interesting. He was arguing that it's the duty of humans to improve the human race by eugenics. And the best way to do that would be by breeding from the most successful men in society. And the, the, therefore, the ideal sperm donor should be someone who had, came from a scientific family, who'd been on the Brains Trust, uh, who was a leading uh, biologist, who had a major role in public life. In, in other words, Sir Julian himself. And, uh, I later, through Jill, became friendly with his son Francis Huxley. And when Francis was in his late 80s, um, he died some years ago, uh, he was pestered by emails from people saying that they'd undergone paternity searches and found that they were apparently descended from his father uh, through sperm donor donating and they wanted France to do a DNA test so they could check up. France absolutely refused to do a DNA test. He had no wish whatever to meet all these half-brothers and half-sisters who were part of his father's plan for improving humanity. Uh, so, but how was your, Anna, uh, your return well, I was when I was at Cambridge an undergraduate, this persisted, the atheist phase, and actually going to India in 1968 did a great deal to change it, because I found myself in a culture <coughs> where practically everyone took God and the spiritual realm for granted, and they weren't stupid, in fact they were a lot more intelligent than people, some people I knew in England, and, um, and I found the whole Indian way of life and Indian approach tremendously attractive. Um, and similar with Buddhism, I learned a bit about meditation in Sri Lanka. Um, so that made me much more interested in religious traditions, as long as they weren't Christian. 
Um, you know, it was part, I was part of that well-known syndrome that we all encounter, the ABC syndrome, anything but Christian. Uh, you know, people get interested in spirituality, you know, shamanism, dream catchers, you know, Hindu bhajans, sort of Buddhism, light, you know, it's as long as it's not Christian. Anyway, I was in that sort of frame of mind. Um, and then when I got back to Cambridge around 1970, LSD was sort of very much the rage, and I took LSD, and that really had a mind-opening effect on me. It really changed my view of what consciousness is, or could be. Um, and then I got interested in transcendental meditation and yoga, which I did in Cambridge. And then, this was in 1960-70, around then. Then, in 1974, um, my fellowship reached a point where I had to uh, either get a job as a university lecturer or think of something else. And the idea of just becoming an academic seemed to me rather unexciting. Uh, and India seemed so much more exciting. So a job came up at a newly formed International Agricultural Institute, ICRASAT, in Hyderabad, India. Um, and I got the job there as principal plant physiologist. And so for the next seven years, on and off, uh, mostly on, I was living in India. Uh, working in this International Agricultural Institute. And while I was there, I went there partly because I was so interested in Hindu philosophy, but quite to my surprise, I felt myself drawn back to a Christian path. Um, and I was confirmed in the Church of South India, aged 34, in St. John's Secunderabad, a garrison church. I later became the organist of St. George's Hyderabad, uh, which we, the settings were Marbeck, everything's Book of Common Prayer. I was the only Englishman there. They, the rest were mainly Anglo-Indians and some Indian converts and creaking fans going around and the white columns of sort of, and frequent power cuts. So there was an old man in a dhoti around the back of the organ who pumped it by hand much of the time um, as I played the Marbeck setting of the Mass and... Um, so, um, and then, but I found that slightly lacking in the depths and profundities of, of Hinduism. And I then came across a wonderful English monk living in an ashram in South India, Father Bede Griffiths. And I then, uh, I met him, I wanted to write a book in India, my book on morphic resonance. Uh, I took time off, two years off from my job. And I wanted to stay in India, and Father Bede said, well, come and live here in the ashram. And so I spent a total of two years living in this ashram in a palm-thatched hut on the bank of a holy river in a small village in Tamil Nadu. Um, and living as part of a religious community, um, you know, five times a day we had prayers. So I was wearing Indian clothes, barefoot most of the time, uh, eating very simple food. We had a Nas meditation every morning and evening. And it was a very, very happy time of my life. Um, and Father Bede was utterly inspiring. Um, he was my main spiritual teacher. Um, so by the time I came back from India, uh, I was so impressed by these manifestations of spirituality in India. You know, the fact people take fasting seriously, they take meditation seriously, they take pilgrimages seriously. India was full of pilgrim routes. I went on some pilgrimages myself there to Hindu shrines. Um, and Father Bede was very ecumenical in his approach. You know, we started the Mass 
by chanting the Gayatri Mantra, which is one of the main Hindu prayers of praying for illumination from the glorious splendor of the sun. May it illuminate our meditation, the divine splendor of the sun. And so I said to Father Bede, I don't see how you can chant the Gayatri Mantra, a Hindu mantra, at the beginning of a Mass in a Christian ashram, a Catholic ashram. He said, we can do it precisely because it's Catholic. He said, Catholic means universal. And if it excludes any path to God, it's not Catholic, it's just a sect. Uh, so he had a very broad approach. Um, and uh, for me, this was enormously helpful because it meant that I could, instead of having to reject or dismiss the insights of Hinduism, Buddhism, and other religions on Sufism within Islam, because I had a Sufi teacher for a while in Hyderabad, um, it was possible to see them all as part of a larger picture. So anatheism, coming back to God, is something that happened to me in India and through India. And just like different strands come together of religion in your life, different strands of musical tradition come back in the Beatles because... And this brings us to the fifth disc, Subhash Lakshmi devotional song, that represents seven years in India and perhaps a return to spiritual practices. Yes. Uh, well, when I was in India, I got very interested in Indian music. And I was living in Hyderabad, which is in South India. And so the main music that we had there was Carnatic music, which is you know, the South Indian tradition of classical music, as opposed to Hindustani music, the North Indian type, which most people hear. Ravi Shankar and all the well-known sitar music is Hindustani. In South India, it's the instead of the sitar, they have the veena, another stringed instrument. And Subhalakshmi uh, was one of the great singers of South Indian devotional music, um, hymns to the goddess Minakshi, who was the goddess of the temple in Madurai, and to various gods. Um, and I loved going to Carnatic concerts because they, Father Bede's view was that all religious paths can be paths to God and um, he sometimes said it's like climbing a mountain from different sides but they sort of meet at the top um, another of his metaphors was the different religions like the fingers of the hand and but they all start from the mystical experience of the divine which is the starting point for all religions so, Buddha didn't get enlightened by doing a PhD and Jesus didn't realize his his nature through a rabbinical seminary it was through direct experience so anyway devotional music which we sang every day at the ashram and of course which we have in the parish church and uh, in all our services or at least all the sun services um, seems to me a very very important path to God and Subhalakshmi um, is in these Carnatic concerts. They always started the con concert before the music began. They started with a, a hymn or song to um, Saraswati, the goddess of music. So praying for the performers and for the audience to be blessed by the goddess of music. 
which I thought was a lovely habit. It was even in secular venues, it was sacralized by this invocation, a bit like having a prayer before uh, music in the parish church. So very much like that. And you eventually, not at that time, but recently wrote a book on the science of spiritual practices. Well, yes. I mean, when I was in India, I got interested in the fact that the so much of the Indian approach is experiential. In other words, it's about the experience of the divine, not reading about it, not just reading books about it, not just talking about it, but direct experience, which is why so many Indians practice meditation or yoga. And, you know, fasting, Muslims take it very seriously in Ramadan, Hindus take it seriously, Indian Christians take it seriously. And when I was in Hyderabad, you know, almost everyone gave up meat for Lent, and I gave up meat for Lent, and I so enjoyed not eating meat. Uh, the next year, I, I'd become a vegetarian, so I had to escalate to giving up alcohol for Lent, which I still do. Um, but then singing is a spiritual practice, pilgrimage is a spiritual practice. Uh, so many of these spiritual practices were alive and well in India. And in my book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I discuss seven different spiritual practices, including connecting with nature, meditation, gratitude, uh, rituals, um, singing and chanting, uh, pilgrimage, all of which are found in all religions, um, and of course in Christianity. Um, but when I came back to England, I found I had to sort of rediscover the mystical cause of Christianity, rediscover the pilgrimage tradition, rediscover fasting in Lent, um, rediscover many of these spiritual practices, because they're not so on the surface here as they are in India. Um, and I think that this is relevant because the, the, the number of hardcore atheists, even in our godless society, is quite small. Um, surveys show that, that are there only 49% of the population describe themselves as Christian now. Um, the remainder are not atheists. Most of them uh, have a vague idea of, that God exists. Many of them pray, um, even though they never go to church. And um, many describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So there's a huge hunger for spiritual practices and connection in our society. And I think one of the great challenges we all face is how to work with the, the fact that a lot of people don't need to be persuaded that spiritual practices are important or there's a spiritual dimension. It's just that most of them don't see that it has anything to do with Christianity. And I think that's the biggest challenge for Christians, not to convert atheists who may be unconvertible, but to show that people who are on a spiritual quest can find what they're looking for within the Christian tradition. Um, and I'm quite optimistic that that can happen. And at a time, and we'll come back to spiritual practices, but at a time when mental health and physical health is so much in the forefront of our mind, mm. your book describes how these practices can actually have practical impact, not just insight, but practical impact. Well, yes. What the, there's now been thousands of papers in peer-reviewed journals studying the effects of spiritual practices. And what these papers show is that people who have spiritual and religious practices are, on the whole, happier, healthier, and live longer than those that don't. The converse must be true. People who don't have 
spiritual or religious practices are unhappier, unhealthier and are shorter than those that do. Which is why I think militant atheism should come with a health warning. Um, because you know it persuades people, alienates people from their own religious tradition, in this case mostly the Christian tradition, and leaves them with nothing in, in, in its place except the feeling they're somehow smarter than everyone else. Which isn't very... Uh, reassuring, you know, if you have problems in life, it may give you kind of arrogance in youth, but uh, uh, it's not a very satisfying doctrine to live by, which is, I think, why depression is so endemic in our society. Subhash Lakshmi, devotional song. Mm. Dominum, and uh, why have you chosen that? What does it mean to you, Jill, being in the room? Well, it's a very special thing for me because uh, we, it was sung at my wedding to Jill in Hampstead Parish Church on December the 21st, 1985, when we were married. Um, there was there, then as now a wonderful choir, and uh, Martin Dane's, Dale Sidwell was still the director of music. Um, and uh, one of the pieces we had was Mozart's Laudate Dominum uh, which I think is just wonderful, I love Mozart and the melodic quality of Mozart is so wonderful um, incidentally the Sober Lakshmi as you would have noticed, Indian music doesn't really have harmony, it has very complex rhythms and it has very complex melodies with quarter tones and so on but it doesn't have harmony. It's just not. It's a completely different way of thinking about music. Um, but Mozart, of course, has beautiful melody and harmony. Um, so that I wanted to have something by Mozart in, in this list. And you met Jill uh, at a conference which I think kind of epitomizes what you're doing and which also the two of you do, which is a conference on ancient wisdom and modern science. And I'll just read from the Guardian review of your book. It says, We need a new mind-body paradigm, a map that acknowledged the many thing, kinds of things that are in the world and the continuity of evolution. We must find different, more realistic ways of understanding human beings, and indeed other animals, as active holes that they are, rather than pretending to see them as meaningless consignments of chemicals. And that gets us back to consciousness, the combination of ancient wisdom 
which still is working on when, with your work, and hard science. Yes. Jill and I met at this conference called Ancient Wisdom and Modern Science in Bombay, as it then was. Um, uh, I was um, working on, I was doing my chickpea harvest in, in Hyderabad um, on our experimental farm, and I was asked to speak at this conference, and I didn't really want to leave the, the, the crucial part of the harvest. Uh, but the organizer who was from California <coughs> persuaded me to go, and so I just went for a day or a day and a half, took the night train to Bombay from Hyderabad. Um, and I was giving a talk on uh, morphic resonance, which I haven't talked about yet, but perhaps will come up later. Yeah. Um, and Joe was there giving this talk on ancient wisdom. And uh, we didn't, I, went, I had to go back to my chickpeas. Um, so uh, we didn't meet again for several months. We bumped into each other by chance in the Cottage Industries Emporium in Delhi. I was buying some handloom bedspreads or something, or shirts to give as presents to people in England. And Joe was there looking for other things. Um, anyway, um, we were married three years later. And um, one of the things that uh, I've been interested in, as you say, is Consciousness studies. This is now a major part of science. And, and when I was an undergraduate, consciousness was simply ignored in science. It was just a matter of nerve impulses in the brain. Um, but in the last 20 to 25 years, consciousness studies has become a major field of scientific inquiry. And this is not just psychology. 20th century psychology in British universities was based on behaviorism rats pressing levers, stimulus response, um, which left consciousness out of it. The behaviorist doctrine is you don't talk about consciousness, it's just a kind of mystical concept. You, you, the only thing you study is stimulus and response. Um, so consciousness studies has opened things up enormously. It includes near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, lucid dreaming, um, mystical experiences, um, changes in physiology while you're singing or chanting. In fact, Dr. Guy Hayward here did his PhD on that at Cambridge, um, on the effects of singing and chanting in producing synchrony in, in, in people's physiology and a, a kind of resonance between people doing it. Come to Evensong is the message here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. Um, so um, I myself have done research on different aspects of consciousness, particularly um, areas about the extended mind, uh, the mind beyond the brain. Um, the normal official mechanistic materialist view is the mind's nothing but the brain, it's all inside your head. So your thoughts can't possibly have any influence on anything outside your body, except through your actions or your words. Um, whereas I think our minds are extended far beyond our brains, even in vision. Right now, uh, I think all of us, as we see this room and each other, um, the, the official view is everything we're seeing is inside our head. We're producing a virtual reality display within the brain, and everything we're experiencing here is actually inside our head. That's the official view. I take the view, which almost everyone else does, except people who have been converted to mechanistic materialism, that our, our images are out there where they seem to be, that when I look at you, my image of you is where you seem to be, outside my brain. Um, and therefore, our minds are extended even in every simple act of visual perception. And to test this, 
I've been doing a lot of research on the feeling of being stared at. Because if you look at someone from behind, if your mind reaches out to touch them beyond your brain, perhaps they could feel it. So can people tell when they're being looked at? The answer is yes, most people have had the experience, not all the time, but turning around to find someone looking at them. I have a paper that came out today, actually, on this subject in the Journal of Scientific Exploration called Directional Scopesthesia. The sense of being stared at is now called scopesthesia because when I first did research on it, one of the main objections I encountered was that it couldn't possibly be scientific because it hadn't got a scientific name. <laughs> so uh, a, a critic of mine in Cambridge uh, said, of course this is nonsense, uh, it can't possibly happen because the mind's inside the brain and it's just folklore superstition that people think they can tell when they're being stared at. He said, but if it did exist, it would have to have a scientific name and I'd suggest scopesthesia. Scop as in microscope, look, uh, aesthesia, feeling as in anesthesia, synesthesia. And so, um, uh, thanks to him, uh, we now have a scientific name, scopesthesia, and this paper that's just come out today it's called directional scopesthesia, in which I show, after examining about a thousand case histories, that it almost always involves a directional response. People don't just feel uneasy and look vaguely to see if there's someone looking. They usually swivel around and look straight at the person looking at them. And this tells us something about the nature of the phenomenon, the way it's related to vision, because I think we project out all our images in the opposite direction to the light coming in, and when you look at anything in a mirror, you directly experience it. The mirror is like a beam splitter. It splits the, the light rays from the visual projections, uh, which go straight through the mirror, which is why you see virtual images behind mirrors. Um, so we directly experience this every single day when we look in mirrors. Um, anyway, this is intensely controversial in the scientific world because it's considered to be impossible. Um, even though it's obvious and everybody experiences it, including children. And my experiments on this started with my own children. Uh, they were my subjects of first resort. Uh, when Merlin was four, I started doing experiments with him. And, um, um, and then later, when I wanted to scale them up, they were at UCS Junior Branch. The headmaster at the time was a scientist, so I said, could I do experiments with the children in the classrooms? So, all the earliest research was done just up round the corner from here on Holly Hill, um, uh, the UCS junior branch, uh, where I had an entire class for class, uh, could do experiments class by class, and published a peer-reviewed paper on uh, experiments on the sense of being stared at in schools. It was later replicated in schools throughout Britain, Germany, and the United States, uh, but it all started here. Well, one way to tap into higher consciousness is music, so let's listen to Mozart's Laudate Dominum. Sun, Cosmos, Solar Waltz. Why did you pick him? And well, if 
obvious, but... Well, <laughs> well Cosmo is... Um, both our sons are very musical. Both play the piano, and they've been playing Cosmo since he was four. Um, and Cosmo plays a whole range of other instruments, and he learned to sing uh, thanks to Hampstead Parish Church. He was in the junior choir, and when he was 12, he was head chorister for a while. Um, so Cosmo um, is amazingly musical and has become a professional musician, a composer and songwriter and singer. Um, and I love his music. And Jill and I have been you know, hearing things he's composed and improvised since you know, he was 12 or 13. They, both boys learned jazz piano um, when they were quite young, and Cosmo was from the age of about seven. And he just took to it like a duck to water, and, and you know, you can just sit at the piano and improvise and play. I can't do that, I have to have music. And so I wanted them to learn in a way that they, so they could do what I can't do. And the trouble is that they can't do what I can do, which is <laughs> read music. I rather hoped that they'd be good at sight reading than I could play duets with them, because I love playing piano duets. But, um, they can't sight read, so I can't play duets with them. But they do duets with each other, with improvised music. And anyway, so I wanted a piece of Cosmos, and I particularly like the solar waltz because it shows you know, their, their original words, the whole music. is Most of his music's happy. Um, it's mostly about nature, um, animals, plants, the sun in this case. Um, and I like that too. So music is a kind of resonance, so would you, it can't be summarized in a minute or two, but try to summarize morphic resonance theories in a minute or two. All right, well, um, this idea first came to me 50 years ago, 1973, I was a fellow of Clare in Cambridge, and I was wrestling with the problem of how form in plants and animals is inherited, because I'd come to the conclusion that genes are grossly overrated. They can't possibly account for the inheritance of form or instinct. All they do is enable organisms to make the right proteins, which is very important. Uh, but it's like saying you can explain the architecture of a cathedral by knowing about the chemistry of the, the stone and the cement and the timber. It just doesn't tell you it's important. It's the material constituents. but. It doesn't give any information about the form or the behavior. Um, and then I had this idea, which was stimulated by reading the philosopher Henri Bergson, his book Matter and Memory, that there's a kind of causation working across time, that similar things can influence subsequent similar things across time. Um, and that memory doesn't have to be stored in the brain. All attempts to find it in the brain have so far failed that it's a resonance across time. The brain's more like a TV receiver than a video recorder. Um, and then I realized that this applies to the inheritance of form in plants um, and the inheritance of form and instinct in animals. It gave a completely new way of looking at biology, which I summarized in my first book, A New Science of Life. Um, and um, so it, in the most general sense, it says that nature there's an inherent memory in nature. Uh, the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. Uh, each species has a kind of collective memory to which every individual contributes and in turn draws upon. Um, 
And it makes a lot of predictions. If you train rats to learn a new trick in London, rats should learn the same thing quicker all around the world, um, which they seem to. If you crystallize a new compound for the first time, it should get easier to crystallize all around the world the more often people make it, which is what happens. Um, if you set a new five-letter word puzzle every morning, as the New York Times does with Wordle, it should get easier for people to solve the problem as the day goes on. And there's an MSc student currently looking at this to see whether Wordle performance does indeed increase throughout the day. I think it might easily because uh, there's already been research on crossword puzzles starting with the observation that many people have made that the Times crossword is easier to do the next day uh, than on the morning it's published because so many people have already solved it. Um, and uh, a principle also that my son Merlin thought of when they were doing GCSE, uh, he said, told me how he and his friends had worked out a way of getting extra marks without extra work. Um, and I said, well, how would you do that? He said, well, by morphic resonance. He said, in the physics paper, for example, there are 12 questions. We'll do questions 11 and 12 first, and then we'll be about 10 minutes behind everyone else in Britain for all the rest, and we'll get a boost by morphic resonance. Well, they all got A stars. Uh, <laughs> um, but, of course, they may have got them anyway, so you need specific tests. Anyway, it's a highly controversial hypothesis within the sciences, um, but is a major focus of my own research and I think would lead to a completely new interpretation of inheritance, memory, um, collective memory, uh, family constellation therapy, which is one of the things that Jill does, um, and indeed evolution. And I think the, the beauty of this is that, yes, it is controversial, but it is also creative and innovative and you test it with scientific tests. And it may be decades before it is confirmed and, and, and agreed, but I think that the beauty of this is the creativity and the innovative approach, and then applied uh, the scientific method to test it. And that is um, really quite, quite extraordinary. So Cosmo, Sheldrake's solo waltz. Solemn fast does love 
bring it down. You can hear the cosmic dance of the spheres. Mm. Uh, so, um, the last disc, Rupert, is uh, by Talis Salvator Mundi. Why have you chosen that? Well, I love polyphonic music, and you know, I first learned about it when I sang as a chorister in, 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 in the school choir. Um, I went to an Anglican boarding school. And, the, and it, I also became very fond of Coral Evensong. Even when I was in my atheist phase, I used to go to Coral Evensong at King's College Chapel in Cambridge and at, at various cathedrals. I used to still continue to go with my father, who introduced me to it as a child. Um, and um, so I wanted to have some polyphonic music. And this seemed a, a really good one to choose because this was uh, sung at Merlin's wedding. Our son Merlin was married two years ago in Hampstead Parish Church. And he was married during maximum lockdown. Originally, you were allowed 30 guests and they changed the rules to 12, so Merlin had to disinvite 18 guests. And so there were only 12 of us there, and then we couldn't have a reception indoors, so we had afterwards a reception in our garden in Willow Road, where we had braziers to try and keep us warm. It was rather a cold day. Um, but it turned out you could have a choir, because the choir didn't count under these numbers, they counted as staff. Um, so um, Merlin's very, very keen on polyphonic music, particularly Talis. And all the music in the service was Talis and Bird. And we had eight people in the choir. Um, and one of the pieces was Salvato Mundi. And, uh, this, so I thought this would be a very good piece to have because, you know, first of all, so, savor the words, savor of the world, savor of the world, save us. That's what it's saying. And we need saving. So I think it's an important message. And, Funnily enough, two or three days ago, I was at the Athenaeum Club. I was invited by an old friend as a guest to a debate. It's the first time they've had a debate since 2018. They used to have them regularly. And the motion was, this house believes that science will save us. And it was proposed by, um, I think, the president of the Athenaeum Club or or one of the secretary or something. Lady Hale was in the chair. She's the president of the club. And it was opposed, the leader of the uh, opposition was uh, Sir Philip May, the husband of Theresa May, who was sitting a few yards from me. Um, and uh, one of the things that came, one of the points that came up when the members made, after the main presentation, uh, one of the members said he was surprised no one had yet mentioned that science isn't going to save us, we can't save ourselves. The whole point of Christianity is we need a saviour and we have one. Um, and uh, so, and of course, the main argument against science would say was is that science can be so badly applied and wrongly applied and used for destructive purposes. Science alone can't possibly save us, although it has to be part of any move towards dealing with all the problems we face. Anyway, so that I thought Salvatore Mundi would be a good one to end with. And uh, Merlin has written about fungi, and uh, I think that ties in with the polyphony of nature, as it were. Yes, well, Merlin, is, uh, he did his PhD, he was at Cambridge at my own college, Clare, and he did his PhD on tropical mycorrhizae, 
uh, the fungal threads that link tree roots together in forests. He did this at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama. Um, and uh, some of you know he's written a book about fungi called Entangled Life. Um, and one of Merlin's points, he's very, very keen on polyphonic music, and that's why his entire wedding service was full of polyphonic music, Talis and Bird. Um, um, that fungi, the fungal hyphae, uh, they grow in parallel and weave around each other. Fungal growth is like polyphony. Um, it's, uh, so he, he sees this as a metaphor for the way nature actually works, especially in the fungal realm. I think it's a very good point. And if that may be our saving polyphony in harmony and singing our own melody together, and that is the essence of polyphony, the various melodies yes. together forming a new new music. Each, uh, each voice is, 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 is itself, but they weave together to form a harmonious whole. And I think it's a wonderful metaphor for the way that nature is and how we could see nature. If we lived more harmoniously with nature, we'd more of a polyphonic approach rather than a domination approach. And that kind of leads us to the final end, uh, the final uh, stage of, uh, of this interview, uh, but not without uh, a plug for the even song, because one of the spiritual practices is uh, uh, music, uh, singing together, uh, as well as um, um, contemplation. And those two are the essence of even song. Yes. Well, I, I, I love Evensong, and I think that it's um, the most important gateway experience for people who are non-practicing Christians, which means most people. Um, it's, I found by experience that if I take friends or acquaintances to Evensong, Hampstead Parish Church, or Westminster Abbey, or to Cathedral, my favorite is Lincoln, um, then no one failed to be moved by it. Um, even Richard Dawkins, that militant atheist, who says that Coral Evensong's his favourite service, and he goes to it in New College Chapel in Oxford. So Evensong is very, very attractive to a lot of people, very moving for most people, and rightly so, because what could be better than utterly beautiful music, wonderful words, the Book of Common Prayer, in beautiful church or cathedral buildings? And it's yes, the choir, how the beauty of the choir and the mm -hmm. singing. Um, so uh, I'm tremendously keen on it. And one of the things that puzzled me was that you, you can go to Coral Even Song at, say, Lincoln or Ely in the winter, and there's a choir, 25 people, incredible music. And the congregation, I've been there when the congregation is two or three, and it just seems to hear this wonderful thing going on. And it's not that people are not going because they're against it. Most people are not going because they just don't know it exists. Mm -hmm. Most people nowadays are brought up in a non-religious way. They've never been to church. They don't know, well, maybe to the odd funeral, but they don't know that this exists. And so one of the things that um, happened was that with Dr. Guy Hayward here, uh, we set up the Coral Evensong Trust and set up a website. Uh, the initial funding of this was partly from the Hampstead Church Music Trust. Um, and there's now this website that, if you don't know it, I strongly recommend it. It's called CoralEvensong.org. And you can look up Coral Evensong anywhere in Britain or Ireland, any day of the week, because most of the cathedrals do it every day, and so do Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Um, and it'll tell you where it is near you, 
or near any place you choose. And then with one click, you can go to the music list and see what they're singing. So it transforms the experience of Coraline. So it means you can go to it and find out about it wherever you are. And since COVID, many cathedrals have started live streaming it. So uh, we also have on the website, uh, like today's live streams, you know what time. And you can click there and you can go to Coraline. During lockdown, I was going to Coraline some of most of the cathedrals in Britain. You know, I went to Durham one day, Liverpool another, you know, Chester, Wells, you know, Exeter. Well, ones that you take a long time to actually go there, but you can actually do it from the comfort of your home. Uh, thanks to the Coraline Song website and, and the cathedral's live streaming it. So, the traditional end questions. How are you going to escape from that island? <laughs> well, I don't think I have much chance of just trying to swim or uh, put together a raft. I think I'll just wait till I'm rescued if I am. <laughs> and what book will you bring other than the Bible and Shakespeare? Well, I love Why? plants and I, I absolutely love plants. And so... I would um, get the flora of wherever it is in the world so I could actually get to know the flora and have plenty of free time uh, to get to know the flora. So I'd have the flora of the desert island. Mm. And what inanimate luxury are you, would you like us to put in your, in your uh, luggage? Well, I'm not quite sure what counts as an inanimate luxury. Now, in my case, it would be a case of claret. <laughs> <laughs> Very well. We shall, uh, we shall soon we'll see to this at the, at the end of the meeting. Uh, um, societal issues, there's always a question. What, uh, what are society's great challenges today? I think I could think well, of Well, the list is endless, isn't it? Um, I think social disintegration lack of any sense of direction, lack of any sense of spiritual direction for many people, um, ecological breakdown, climate change, mass migration, all of these, um, just a few of the thre ever-present threat of nuclear war, plenty of them, there's no shortage uh, to put on the list. And how are you going to solve it? Well, I'm not going to solve it. Um, um, but I think that one of the ways that it, one of the ways that could help to solve it is through a rediscovery of the spiritual dimension of life, and I hope through a revival of Christianity, particularly Anglicanism, which is so well suited to the English temperament for obvious historical reasons. Um, and um, I think we're going to have to learn to live happily with less. And I think unless we have a spiritual dimension to our lives where we can find that you don't need more and more stuff and you don't need to jet off to Bali for your holidays causing huge emissions of jet fuel and so on. You can actually go on a footpath pilgrimage in England and it's much more satisfying. And, uh, finding ways of living with less and being happier with less depends on a spiritual revival. And so I think that's the most important thing I can think of. And the Coral Evensong website and the British Pilgrimage Trust are both things I'm practically involved with, which are tiny drops in that ocean. Mm. Then a few rapid-fire questions from uh, inside the actor studios. One word, spontaneous answers, please. What excites you? Oh, plants. <laughs> what terrifies you? The threat of societal breakdown and nuclear war and ecological collapse. What's your favourite word? Green. Your <laughs> least favourite word? Fuck. 
I hate the way it occurs in TV programs. It's always used as become a colloquialism. I just absolutely loathe it. What turns you on? Um, well, um, again, plants. I, I just love looking at plants and being in nature. What turns you off? Man-made ugliness, like the sort of fringes of an American town with signs and neon signs for diners and huge car parks and uh, uh, that kind of thing. What sound or noise do you love? The song of birds, particularly blackbirds. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of internal combustion engines, such as like, people revving up motorbikes very loudly, trying to show off. I shouldn't ask this question, but what's your favourite curse word? <laughs> I'd just rather not say, because I actually believe in curses, and I, 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 so I don't want to utter them. What uh, profession, uh, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Um, I think land management. I really sort of enjoy running woodlands or farms or something like that. And what profession would you definitely not want? I don't think I'd want to be a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the final question, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome. <laughs> Sue Garden kindly agreed to uh, say uh, uh, the word, the vote of thanks. We still have the eighth music. Oh, we do. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well. well, so much for my uh, Talis Salvator Mundi. God, can't do without it. No. It's all. Yes. <laughs> salvation at the end even for me and my errors um, <laughs> yes. so, so let me just say that was Hampstead Parish Church Choir actually singing it well at Merlin's wedding oh that's good yes well Ruben thank you so much this has been a real treat not just the amazing variety of music but actually to get a scientific lecture on the way you know which was a bonus I think I was first aware of Rupert nearly 60 years ago because in 1965 my husband Tim and I rented a flat in Newark-on-Trent from the formidable Mrs Sheldrick. <laughs> she was extraordinarily kind to me. She endlessly invited me around to tea 
And you reminded me about pets. I seem to remember there were quite a lot of small furry animals and birds around in the house. Uh, but she talked to me incessantly about her amazing son, Rupert. I think you had at this stage got a double first at Cambridge, so obviously she wasn't completely misplaced on that. But of course I never had the chance to meet this prodigy until 30 years later I turn up at Hampstead Parish Church and who do I meet but this man I've known so much about 30 years before, along with your then little sons, Merlin and Cosmo, who of course have gone on to do amazing things, but actually with parents like Jill and you, they didn't have much option today, I suppose. Um, but so thank you so much for this. <laughs> Thank you.